Oh, Father, we're so grateful, we're so thankful to you for another opportunity to come into your word. What a privilege and what a blessing, Lord. Uh, Even in the midst of whatever trials and afflictions each of us may be experiencing, whatever burdens we are carrying, Lord, and those exist on this earth, you never promised us as believers that everything would be um, uh, free of trial and free of suffering. In fact, your word tells us that Part of your grace is suffering, so help us, Lord, to live well under our suffering, Lord. I thank you so much for uh, just the fact that we can rejoice in one another, in the body of Christ, in brothers and sisters who come alongside of one another and who uplift one another. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you have put us in this beautiful living organism called your church, uh, made up of your redeemed people, and that because of that, Lord, we don't have to carry anything on our own. You have given us one another, and we thank you for that. I pray that our time this morning would be for your honor and the exaltation of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are back in Colossians uh, chapter 1. So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to begin our time by reading God's Word, specifically Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 uh, through 20. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 20. And the Word of God says this, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He will come, He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. May the Lord bless His wonderful Word. Well, the title of the morning's message is this, Delighting in Christ our Glorious Redeemer. Delighting in Christ, our glorious Redeemer. And our focus is going to be verses 19 through 20 this morning in Colossians 1. And, you know, I don't know about you and your reflections through this study in the book of Colossians. One of the things that has been helpful for me, we've been talking so much, especially these last three or four Sundays from verses 15 through 20, about the preeminence of the Son of God in creation and in redemption. And I think when we hear something like the sun is preeminent in creation, we don't stop and really reflect and think about what that means and how vast creation really is. We're not just talking about planet Earth, right? We're talking about the universe, that Christ is the divine architect, the agent of the Father in creating everything. Everything. The universe in its vastness. And to put things in perspective... Uh, I jotted down some staggering statistics that 
uh, just about the universe in comparison to some other known entities like the sun or the Milky Way to put in perspective what Paul is saying here in the fact that the sun is preeminent and supreme over creation, the universe, at least the known universe as we know it. For example, did you know that the sun is some 864,000 miles across? How many of you knew that or had an idea? Well, I'm sure more of you knew that fact. You know, that's over a hundred times the diameter of Earth. Over a hundred times. The Earth is about over 7,000 miles across. How many of you knew that the sun alone weighs about 333,000 times as much as Earth does? That's staggering, isn't it? The sun is so large that... 1.3 million planet Earths would fit inside of it. But even though the sun is the largest and the most, the the biggest um, um, object in our solar system mass-wise, it is just a medium-sized star in comparison to some 4 billion stars in the Milky Way. Our galaxy is so massive that it takes 225 million years for our sun to travel around the galaxy. Think about that. Those, those figures are staggering, aren't they? The vastness of the universe. Our planet is so small in a small solar system within a very relatively small galaxy, which happens to be billions of ga- oh, over 170 billion galaxies are estimated. And our galaxy is just one of those in the observable universe. Just thinking about that. And then the thought that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, the Son of God is said to be the preeminent supreme one over all that vast universe. And it causes me to worship the Lord. Those statistics also are pride deflating, aren't they? They remind us of our insignificance on the one hand. That we are utterly insignificant. That you and I are not the the center of the universe. We're not the center of the world, if you want to put it that way. But as human beings, we can act that way, right? When we read about some of these statistics, in comparison to planet Earth and the galaxies and the universe, we realize how small we are and how insignificant we are on the one hand. But on the other hand, it also reminds us of the great significance and the central place that planet Earth is, isn't it? In 1990, spacecraft Voyager 1 turned its back on planet Earth. And somebody suggested to take a famous uh, picture of planet Earth from about 4 billion miles away. And the picture was taken and it came to be known, as many of you know, as the pale blue dot, which was as a famous picture of planet Earth. From that distance, planet Earth appears as a tiny blue speck in the depths of space. So, so tiny. And yet the astronomer Carl Sagan said this about that particular picture. From this vantage point, he says, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest, but for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That is us, he says. In other words... Even though our earth is so small, at least to this astronomer and others, that is very significant. That's home for us who are humanity. 
And I would add to that, beloved, that even though in comparison to the rest of the universe, the earth is so small, and yes, we are insignificant on the one hand, God has so chosen planet earth to be the the, the theater, the central place where he sent his beloved son Jesus into the world. What a beautiful truth that is. See, we could be tempted to believe that though planet earth is so small, so insignificant, it is not the case to our loving heavenly father. Humanity is the crown of his creation. And during Christmas time for me, as I've been looking at these verses, it just reminds me of the fact that my heavenly father had a loving care and concern for humanity, including me, a wretched sinner, in sending his eternal son into this small planet earth to save a wretch like me. I hope that we think about that. I hope that we consider those things. That as we talk about the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ over all creation, and yes, we are insignificant in relation to the universe. On the other hand, we are utterly significant. Because listen, God from the very foundation of the world designed a plan. And He's carrying out that plan in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's doing it to the praise of His glory. And we are the objects, the centerpiece, if you will, His humanity. His, those who are His image bearers of that wonderful extension of His love. And this was by all of God's design and His delight. That is the purpose of this particular text right here, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. To show us the Father's delight in His Son, that He would be our all-sufficiency. Verses 19 through 20, just by way of review, come on the heels of two amazing statements that we saw last week. And I don't know if you remember these, but by way of review, we saw last week in verse 18, first of all, that Christ is the unrivaled Lord of the church. That as the head of the church, Christ is the supreme ruler, the authority, the one who guides and he directs his church. He is the, the source of growth and maturity in his church. He is the unrivaled Lord of the church. Secondly, we saw that Christ is the victorious Savior of the church. That by virtue of His resurrection, Christ is the first fruits of a humanity that is to to follow. He's the first of many to rise from the dead. In our union with Him, He is our victorious Savior. He is the source of our hope. Those claims, beloved, are not claims that anyone else can make. Nobody can make those claims. And that is precisely Paul's point in Colossians. He is preeminent over uh, creation, and he's preeminent in redemption. He's a supreme one. And then we were reminded, the latter part of verse 18, that these things are ultimately to remind us that in our Christian experience, these truths should become realities to us. So that Christ would come to have first place in everything. Christ is, in fact, preeminent and supreme over all things, creation and in redemption. That's a fact. Whether somebody chooses to submit themselves to that truth or not, Christ is the supreme king of the universe. But in our experience as believers, we discussed and we talked about how do we get that in our life? How do we experience that? How do we, how do we appropriate these things to our lives so that Christ indeed, in our experience, in accordance with the truth of God's word, is number one in our lives? See, the purpose of Paul putting forth this portrait of Christ to the Colossians. And and for us, I would say, is that change would happen, beloved. 
that we would have a, a response of awe that leads to worship and the treasuring of Christ as our all-sufficient Lord and Savior. See, the Colossians were struggling with keeping Christ at the center. The Colossians were struggling with, with finding Christ and experiencing Christ in their Christian life as the source of their sufficiency. So what does Paul do? Paul gives these Colossians a picture, a portrait of Christ as preeminent, as supreme, so that as they see Him as the supreme one over all things, they may not exchange Christ for anything else or anyone else. That He would be their all-sufficient Lord and Savior. That's what Paul is getting at here. This lofty, uh, mountain top, theologically speaking, picture of Christ is not given in a vacuum. It's meant to fill our minds and renew our thinking concerning the majesty and the glory of Christ so that we would see Him in our experience as the all-sufficient One that He is. You know, this has been very humbling for me, even the past few days. Um, I think that as we see the pages uh, on these pages of Scripture... This supreme, sufficient one, who is Christ. Our theology and my theology needs to be fleshed out in practice in the way that I respond to trials. And I would encourage us that at the end of the day, beloved, any of us can articulate a lofty knowledge of Christ. Any of us can articulate and have a a great knowledge of Scripture. But where push comes to shove is how do we respond and put that theology and that, that, that view of Christ into practice when things get difficult? Do you struggle with that? That's when it gets difficult, isn't it? How do we see Christ this way and then count Him sufficient in everything? As the one who's preeminent over everything in life, over our decision-making, and the way that we think about things, and our perspective and outlook on life, and trials and sufferings, that we find Him to be the great vindicator, because we know that at the end of the day, the story ends with Him reigning supreme, and us who are in Christ reigning with Him. That eschatological end-time perspective needs to be applied to the way that we respond to trials. Amen? It must be. So I encourage us that as we continue to look at this portrait, and even this morning, verses 19 through 20, that you think about, ask yourself this question. How is this portrait of Christ that we are seeing in Colossians chapter 1 applicable to the way that I respond to trials, to the way that I use my resources? Am I investing those resources for the kingdom of God? Or am I using them for self, for the things of this earth? How do I respond to difficult situations, challenging relationships, difficult circumstances? Because this truth of Christ and who He is must be fleshed out in the way that we live. Now, Here in verses 19 through 20, our focus this morning is going to be this. Here we find two reasons, two reasons why Christ is supreme, and thus He is to be our all-sufficiency. Two reasons why Christ is supreme, and thus is to be our all-sufficiency. And I want to tell you this. Listen, God the Father has so designed and willed for His Son Jesus to be made much of in our worship and Christian life until His return. That's what God the Father desires. 
These great truths concerning Christ should motivate us to worship Him and to count Him as all-sufficient. And if the Father feels this way about His Son, as we're going to see this morning in these two major reasons why Christ is supreme, if the Father is delight in the Son in this way, then we in our union with Christ should strive to treasure Christ in the same way. And I want us to see this together. First of all, Reason number one for Christ's supremacy, that we would find Him all-sufficient, is this. The Father delights in Christ as God. The Father delights in Christ as God. Verse 19 says this. Notice with me. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Now at first glance, verse 19 may sound kind of strange, So we need to kind of unpack it a little bit to understand what Paul means here in verse 19. One thing that makes it hard to understand is that there is no subject in the Greek to go with the with the verb to be pleased or to delight or as the NASB uh, New American Standard translates it, good pleasure. There is no supplied subject in the Greek. The New American Standard, if you have that translation, supplies the subject father. But it is not there in the original. You may notice that it's italicized. The, uh, the um, English Standard Version, the ESV, translates that verse, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So they take all the fullness to be the subject of that particular uh, verse. The, the NIV translates verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point here in verse 19 and give you all of the arguments and all the different choices. The best translations and the majority of commentators support inserting here God as the subject in verse 19. And even more specifically, I would add, as the New American Standard Version puts it, the Father. So that verse 19 reads, according to the New American Standard Version, which I think is a good translation and a good supplying of the subject, the Father here, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Or more literally, for in Him, in Him appears at the beginning of the, of, of the sentence there. For in Him, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell and I primarily say that because the context supports the translation of specifically the Father as the subject. If you look back at, at verse 12, the Father is the one who initiated redemption in verses 12 through 14. And it makes sense that God the Father is the one who delights or takes pleasure in the fullness dwelling in Christ. Then in verse 20, if you take the Father as the subject, it is the Father who reconciles all things to Himself. That word there in verse 19, himself, or in verse 20, himself, I take that as being a reference to the Father. According to 2 Corinthians 5.20, Romans 5.10, both of those passages speak about God being the one who initiates reconciliation. So the best view there is to supply Father as the subject of verse 19. That the Father delights in the Son for further support is nothing unique to this particular passage. Um, I'm sure that you have read the wonderful accounts of Jesus' baptism. Uh, uh, In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, 
It is recorded that God the Father, upon the Son coming out of the water in His baptism, pronounced an affirmation about the Son. He said, This is my Son, the Beloved, literally, in whom I am well pleased. God was well pleased in His Son. In Matthew 17.5, after the transfiguration, it says that God the Father spoke, saying concerning His Son, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. So this, this view of the Father taking pleasure in the Son, and the, and the fact that He is the, the fullness, and we'll talk about what that means right now, is a good uh, subject to supply here. And it is consistent even with other passages. And we can go to other passages, but we won't continue to belabor the point. The other question here in verse 19 that makes it difficult uh, for us to understand what Paul is saying is what does this fullness refer to? What is this fullness that continually dwells in Christ? That's the sense of the verb. It's a present tense. Continually dwells in, uh, in Christ. With the article, the fullness, as it appears here, the word means totality completeness or full measure of something, the fullness of something. Clearly, this fullness refers to the fullness of God. And I think that based upon Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, it makes it clear in chapter 2 verse 9, Paul says this, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So there in chapter 2 verse 9, Paul means that Christ in His humanity is fully God. That's what fullness means even here in verse 19. It means in this context that Christ is completely God. Everything that, that God is, Christ is. And isn't that the point that he's been making in this particular passage? That Christ is the Son of God and being and essence and nature is a share of Godness, if you will. One God eternally existing in three persons. The glorious triune God. That's the point that he's been making. That the Son is equal to the Father in being in essence and nature. Sharer of his divine attributes. And that's the same point that he's making here. So this meaning of fullness here in verse 19 is a reference to Christ's deity. And this even makes more sense when you consider part of what the false teachers were promoting, at least in seed form as we saw a couple of weeks ago. There was a growing thought that there was this ascending order of emanations or spiritual beings leading up to God, almost as if they were trying to reach the top of this pyramid with God at the top. And there's this ascending order of emanations or spirit beings marking uh, levels of closeness to God. But none of those were God themselves. And Jesus, it was understood or taught, that he was somewhere on that particular ladder of the, on that pyramid leading up to God, but he wasn't completely God himself. And so in contrast, what does Paul say here and has been saying? The Father is pleased that in him all the fullness continually dwells, is, is the idea here. This is the Father's divine affirmation of the Son, that he's not one, one emanation, that he's not one who is reaching up somehow trying to reach the perfection of God and his divine attributes. He is God himself as well in his being, essence, and nature. That the Son is completely God. He's not a measure of God. He is completely and fully God. Now, why does Paul say this yet again? 
Because that's the point that he's been making throughout this passage. Why does Paul, again, point this time from the Father's own heart, affirming the, the deity of Christ once again? This time from the Father's perspective. Well, I think, beloved, as you've read the letter and we've, we've discussed this over and over again, the implications for Christ being God is that they would find their sufficiency in Him, right? That they wouldn't look to another source. That they wouldn't look to, to angels and philosophy and those kinds of things and pursue after their pleasures or some other method of sanctification, but that Christ, because He's fully God, He is all that they need. When he says in chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, the implication then that he draws in verse 10 of chapter 2 is, in Christ you have been made complete. You don't need anyone else. If Christ is fully God, He is sufficient. He's everything that you need. That's why he says in chapter 2 and verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So don't let anyone delude you with persuasive argument, he says. In Christ are all of those treasures. You don't need Christ plus another being. You don't need Christ plus another philosophy. You don't need Christ plus money. You don't need Christ plus possessions. You don't need Christ plus emotional security from someone. You don't need Christ plus anyone. Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. He is the one, the only one that we need. See, few of us, few of us, if anybody in here, would deny that Christ is God, the deity of Christ. Few of us would do that. But how many of us, beloved, live with those implications in mind? How many of us live as if in our thoughts, in our living, in our thinking, in everything... And everything that we do in our decision-making, in our perspective, Christ is everything that we need. And I'm preaching to myself here. How many of us live as if Christ is all-sufficient? What happens? As soon as a trial or a difficulty comes along, we break down, do we not? We're weak and we're frail. But then we come back and we revisit the Scriptures and, we, ha- and we, we see the majesty and the glory of this Christ who is fully God. And we realize very quickly, wow, in comparison to what you have just shown me in your Word, Lord, that trial and that suffering is nothing in comparison to the bigger picture here. Even this morning, my brother Dave Austin, during prayer again, yet again as he so wonderfully does every Sunday morning, reminding us of the persecuted church. And those people who are in other countries who don't have the freedoms that we have, they delight in Christ, beloved. They delight in Christ. And they do it in the midst of persecution, in the midst of some of them being beheaded for their faith. Their delight and their treasure is in Christ. Their sufficiency is in Him, even if it costs them their own life. If the Father delights in the Son, we should be doing the same thing. Amen? In our union with Christ, He should be our vital relationship. He should be the one who is our all-sufficiency. One theologian, commenting on the meaning of God the Father, taking pleasure in the fullness of His Son here, writes this. Listen to this, quote, "...that in Christ should all fullness dwell, means that in Him, in Christ, there should be such dignity, authority, power, and moral excellence as to be fitted to the work of creating the world." redeeming His people and supplying everything needful for their salvation. This is to us most precious a truth. We have a Savior who is in no respect deficient in wisdom because He is God. 
no deficiency in power because He is God, and grace to redeem and to save us because He is God. There's nothing necessary to be done in our salvation which He is not qualified to do. There's nothing which we need to enable us to perform our duties, to meet temptation and to bear trial, which He is not able to impart. In no situation of trouble and danger will the church find that there is a deficiency in Him. In no enterprise to which she can put her hands, she meaning the church, will there be a lack of power in her great head to enable her to accomplish what He calls her to do. We may go to Him in all our troubles, our weaknesses, our temptations, and our needs, and may be supplied from His fullness. Just as if we were thirsty, we might go to an ocean of pure water and drink. See what he's saying? There is an infinite, infinite plethora of sufficiency in our Lord. Amen? He has everything that we need, beloved. I think that's what Paul's point is here. And what he's been drawing us to. He's beginning to now draw some implications for our life, even at the end of verse 18, that Christ would come to have first place in everything for these Colossians in light of the supremacy and the glory of who Christ is. So what he's saying is that the Father delights, takes pleasure in the Son as the fullness of God. And this affirmation... By way of Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the, how the Father feels about the Son, may, be, it may seem a little bit strange to us. A lot of that is because of our, own, our ignorance of the triune God that we worship. But remember that before any of us, beloved, came into existence, there was this eternal relationship and perfect relationship that existed within the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and and God the Holy Spirit, all three persons within the Godhead have eternally existed in loving and unhindered relationship. And as we've seen, each person within the Godhead worked in harmony to create the universe and to redeem humanity. All three of them were there. The Spirit of God and the beginning in creation was hovering over the surface of the waters, right? All three of them were active in their different functions and roles. One God in three persons. How glorious of a truth that is. So yes, it seems strange to us, uh, the statement in verse 19, but only because of our ignorance about the triune God who we worship. The Father delights in the Son. Because of this eternal unhindered relationship has existed forever and ever and ever before we were even came into historical existence, if you will. And that continues even now, and it will continue forever. And would you believe that in the gospel, because God the Father sent His Son into the world, we now in union with Christ enter into that beautiful relationship with our triune God. How beautiful that is. Precisely because Christ is who He is. God the Father has so designed it that Christ be first place in everything, that He be exalted, beloved. That He be the source of our, that we, of our, of our ex- exaltation. That He would be the greatest treasure of our lives. Sometime, if you haven't done this already, read through the book of Acts. And read some of the sermons that were preached especially early on. And over and over again you will see the preachers talking about the God of the Old Testament now setting forth His Son... His Son, the Risen One, as now the exalted Lord and Savior of the world. That was characteristic of the preaching of the early church. Even the arrival in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit was not, to, so, it was not so that people would get enamored by the Spirit of God and, and, and experiencing Him. 
The purpose of the Spirit of God coming to earth was to reveal the Son of God in dark human hearts, that He would open the eyes of the hearts of men who were in darkness to see the risen and exalted Christ and to infinitely treasure Him. That is the goal of life. God, beloved, is pleased when Christ is viewed in His majesty and exalted in our lives, when we make much of Him. And in our trials and in our difficulties, in the hardest of times, He becomes our all-sufficient Savior. That's what pleases the Lord. That's what pleases God the Father. Exalting Christ was the goal of Paul's life. In Philippians 1.20, I had a brother quote this to me last night, and it was so helpful for my own soul. Philippians 1.20, Paul said he longed for Christ to be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's greatest desire. Whether I live or whether I die, and he said that when he was incarcerated, when he wrote to the Philippians, he's in jail on house arrest, potentially going to be killed. And he says, whether I live or whether I die, I want Christ to be exalted above everything and anything. He knew that that was what the Father wanted. That's why God sent His Son into the world. That His Son would redeem a humanity who would live for the glory of God in the exaltation of the Son, in the power of the Spirit of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, Paul prays for believers that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in them. That His name would be glorified in them. I love how John Kitchen, a commentator, sums it up like this. Quote, God the Father took pleasure in incarnating the divine fullness in Jesus Christ, and we bring Him pleasure when we exalt Christ. End quote. Beautiful. God the Father is glorified in the exaltation of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit at this stage of redemptive history, beloved. To exalt Christ is the greatest goal of our life, and we exalt Him when we delight in Him as the infinite treasure that He is and our all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Wonderful, wonderful truth. So in verse 19, verse 19 expresses the heart of the Father toward His Son, that He's pleased in His Son, that He delights in His Son as the Supreme One over all things by virtue of the fact that Christ is His fullness. In other words, He's fully God. This is what Paul is getting at with the Colossian believers. Again and again, I will remind you, to see Christ for who He is in all of His glory, bestowed upon Him by the Father, so that He would be their all-sufficient Lord and Savior. And that is the message for us, beloved. That Christ would be the unrivaled One in whom we would delight. So the Father delights in Christ as God. Secondly, second reason why we should count Him as supreme, and He should be our all-sufficient One, is this. Because the Father delights in Christ as Redeemer. The Father delights in Christ as Redeemer. Look at verse 20. And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And there are a couple of observations that I want you to make very quickly here in verse 20. Both the subject... The Father from verse 19 and the main verb translated in the New American Standard, good pleasure, govern or carry over into verse 20 as well. 
In other words, not only does the Father delight in the Son as God, that He would be our all-sufficiency, but He also, in verse 20, delights in Christ as Redeemer. He delights in Him as the Redeemer. Both the subject and the verb carry over into verse 20. The second observation that I want you to make is this. Look at verse 20 and the emphasis on the Redeemer, the one through whom God is reconciling the world to Himself. It says in verse 20 at the beginning for emphasis, and through Him, that is Christ, through Him. It is through the cross of Christ, His cross. And then at the end, toward the end, it is through Him. All of these phrases point to the centrality of Christ as Redeemer. He's God's special agent of redemption, if you will. Over and over again, God is working in and through His Son, the Supreme One, the Preeminent One. And He delights in Him that way. Now, as we look at verse 20, I want us to answer three basic questions. And these are going to be sub-points under that second major point. Three basic questions directly from verse 20 that I want to answer for us. Okay, First of all, what does God's redemptive work through Christ involve? What does it involve? Look at verse 20. I think he answers this for us very clearly. He says, And through Him and through Christ to reconcile all things to Himself. The work of God's redemption in and through Christ involves reconciliation. The Father works through the Son to reconcile all things to Himself. And God is the reconciler. According to Romans 5.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.20, those passages speak of God reconciling the world to Himself. And this is a, a great word, reconciliation here. To reconcile is such a significant word. It appears here in its intensified meaning, literally meaning this, to reconcile comprehensively, to reconcile thoroughly or completely. It has the idea of making friends out of enemies. You want to know why God sent the Son, the one that we are worshiping as that baby in the manger who's the preeminent one? He has sent His Son so that He, His Son, by faith in His atoning sacrifice, would reconcile, make friends, enemies. Isn't that beautiful? Put that in perspective. The very term reconciliation implies that there's a problem. There's friction that exists. Something is wrong. And beloved, all we got to do, especially these days, is turn on the news or read a paper or have a conversation with somebody who knows about current events. All we got to do is look around us and realize that something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. And things are not what they should be. Even the person who is not a Christian understands that. I read a couple of articles the other day. People who are, who are atheists, who don't want anything to do with God, they themselves recognize that something is wrong. You think? <laughs> of course there's something wrong. Everything is in chaos, is it not? And were it not for the sustaining grace of the Creator, then everything would completely go Ichabod, done. Everyone can attest to this. Natural disasters, mass murders, corruption in the government, in society, corruption in our own hearts. We, every single day, we lay down on our bed and we know that we've had a war against sin. Something is not right. There are struggles every single day, right? Struggles for power, people exploiting one another all over the world, war, atomic bomb, potential. 
All kinds of things. All is not well. Things are unsettled, beloved. We know that. Even the person who doesn't believe knows that. So what went wrong? What went wrong? Well, the Bible gives us the answer to that, does it not? It tells us that at the fall, the fall went wrong. And man sinned. Man sinned. At one time, they enjoyed, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect relationship. Perfect relationship with the triune God. Enjoying all of the blessings of that beautiful garden. Unhindered relationship. The ability to rule God's creation as the crown of God's creation. They had perfect bliss. We will never experience that until Christ returns and we reign in the new heavens and the new earth, right? But Adam and Eve had that at one point. No turmoil. No barrier between them and God. It was wonderful relationship with the, with the triune God. And then they sinned. And people often focus on the eating of the forbidden fruit. Well, yes, that was the action, was it not? But it was man's attempt to elevate himself above God. It was the attack on the character of God as the loving creator, the good and wise creator who had kind intentions for them who would protect them and who was going to take care of them. It was an attack on the Word of God, spurning His protection for them and their good. He had given them everything, and He gave them one restriction, and that was the very thing that they went and they did, right? What He told them not to do. It was an attack on the character of God. It was the desire of man, of of humanity, to now put self as the idol of worship. That is what went wrong, beloved. Man's sin went wrong. And as we know, God cursed them and He expelled them from paradise. To Adam, now the toil and the futility of work, not work itself, right? Work was given to us pre-the fall, pre-sin, right? To, to rule God's creation and to cultivate it and to keep it. But now that toil and that futility in work is, a, is an evidence of the earth's hostility toward mankind, if you will. That's what happened. God cursed Adam. And what did He do with Eve? Now the pain of labor would be a reminder of the fall. Not the beautiful blessing of, of babies coming into the world of human reproduction. But that, that the labor pains would be a picture and a reminder of the devastation of sin. That's what went wrong. And God cursed man because of his sin. The universe. Romans 8 speaks about the fact that God subjected creation to futility. Even creation itself groans and suffers suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. Even creation itself was changed. And there's turmoil and corruption now. See, the fall and its effects change everything, beloved. And therefore, reconciliation... Is necessary. Since the fall, we have a problem, listen, of cosmic and universal proportions. Affecting humanity, the material, physical, and spiritual realms have been deeply affected. All is unstable. All is out of harmony. The universe is out of sorts. Out of sorts. Disturbance and turmoil exist. The universe is deteriorating. It's breaking down. The earth, no matter how much we try to preserve it, beloved, is going to break down naturally because of the fall. It's going to break down. All because of sin. And we see these things happening all over the world. 
We see murder, and we see sin, and we see exploitation, and we see natural disasters taking place. God is absolutely sovereign, and it is a reminder to us of the utter devastation of sin, is it not? Why is there suffering and pain in the world, people ask? Why is there? I love what John Piper says. Listen to this quote. God disordered the natural world because of the disorder of the moral and spiritual world. That is because of sin. In our present fallen condition with our hearts so blinded to the exceeding wickedness of sin, we cannot see or feel how repugnant sin is. The natural world is shot through with horrors that aim to wake us from the dream world of thinking that demeaning God is not a big deal. It is a horrifically big deal to demean God and His character." Suffering and pain in the world, in other words, reminds us of the horrors of sin and our need for a Savior who is going to bring reconciliation to the world, beloved. It is such a reminder. I remember working with Children's Hunger Fund in a Christian nonprofit organization and visiting these places in foreign countries and talking to the people living in these realities of poverty-stricken areas, deformity because of water intake, no pure water in those particular areas, no, hou- no housing, real poverty, beloved, real suffering and real pain. I'm not saying that in America we don't experience that. We absolutely do in, in, different, in different forms and different shapes. But some of these places, it is remarkable then to see the believers respond and say, Yes, but at the end of the day, even though my circumstances and everything in my material realm is not what it should be, there is hope for me because the peacemaker has come. Because the peacemaker has come, there is hope for me. And it was beautiful to talk to them about the sovereignty of God and why suffering and evil exist and talk about sin and the effects of the fall and the curse and all of those things. But to see them then come back to the gospel and to see, we see why the gospel is all the more glorious. Because if we had all of those things in our country, then we potentially would treasure other things above Christ, above his gospel. Which leads us to our second question. If reconciliation was needed, how was this redemptive work accomplished? How was it fulfilled? Look at verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of His cross. God was delighted, pleased. It was his, according to His good pleasure for all things to be reconciled to through Christ. God initiated peace, beloved. What is peace but the restoration of fellowship between God and mankind that has been marred and broken because of sin? We've experienced that as unbelievers, right? No peace. No peace. Constant turmoil within us. We knew that there needed to be something that happened to us, something that changed from the inside out. That, beloved, was God effecting peace by His Spirit, right? There was peace needed. Because the relationship between God and men was profoundly impacted upon the fall. Each and every one of us are by nature sinners born. We are children of wrath and we only prove it, beloved. The more we grow up as babies and we start to say no when we were never taught to say no. We were just talking the other day about our little Chloe. She's getting up to now 20 words, almost clearly being able to speak more. But one word I was telling Brock, we never had a teacher, was no. I mean, she knew mine or mine. No, mine, right? Where does that come from? That's like the perfect picture right there in a funny kind of way, right? 
of the sinful human heart. Each and every one of us were born enemies of God, beloved. Hostile. And we proved that sinful nature by going astray. We didn't run toward God. In fact, we're going to be looking at this next week in Colossians 1.21 that formerly we were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, we were not just victims of society, victims of our circumstances. No, we were running after sin. We wanted to indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. There is nothing good in us, beloved. Absolutely nothing. We were by nature children of, God, uh, of wrath and mutiny and rebellion against our Creator, not fleshing out our purpose to worship Him supremely. So there needed to be reconciliation. And that's going to happen through the blood of the cross of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've considered this. But God was the one that initiated this reconciliation. That is one of the most mind-boggling realities for me, even as a sinful human being. What is natural for us as human beings is that when somebody wrongs us, we expect that they would be the ones to initiate reconciliation, right? Come and ask for forgiveness. Acknowledge what you've done. Confess what you've done. And then the forgiveness will be extended. That's our natural response, what we expect as human beings. That if there's friction between two parties, the offender has to go and make it right. In the case of the gospel, the glorious reality is that God initiated peace, beloved. God did it. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And there's the means by which God accomplishes reconciliation through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. Christ Himself is our peace. Even as you think about Christmas, remember what it was said of that little baby in that manger by the heavenly hosts upon seeing Christ, they praised him saying glory to God in the highest and on earth. What peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace came with this one who is the king of the universe, but it came at a high price. Did it not? It did not come free. Yes. It's a free gift offered to us in salvation, that's how you can be forgiven of your sins this morning by faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the only provision of God for the forgiveness of your sins that you may be reconciled to God. It's free. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not based upon anything you've ever done. It is a free gift. And we as believers say glory to God because there was nothing that I can bring to the table whereby I can boast. It's all based upon God's gift to me. It was free. It is free to us, beloved, in the sense that we don't bring anything to the table. It wasn't free to God, was it? It came through the shedding of the blood of His Son. A gruesome death. That's what this reference is. The gruesome shedding of blood upon the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. When you think about the cross of Christ... That was God putting His Son on the cross, according to Galatians chapter 3, cursing His own Son on the tree. Pouring His wrath for our sins upon His own Son. And based upon that sacrifice, beloved, on the cross, some 2,000 years ago by the Son of God, 
Our sins can be forgiven. That was a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. The wrath that we deserved was poured upon God's own beloved Son. It was a propitiatory, blood-shedding sacrifice. This bloody death of Christ satisfied the the perfect, sinless uh, requirement of God for perfection. It accomplished our redemption. We were bought out of sin so that we might now walk as as Christ our Master and walk in righteousness. We have been, been bought out of sin by the bloody death of Christ and putting our faith upon that that death, that atoning death, so that we no longer should be serving sin, but serving Christ. It was redeeming. It was redemptive. Buying us out of slavery to sin. By His bloody death, Christ achieved the forgiveness for our sins. The forgiveness of our sins. Outside of Christ, beloved, there is no forgiveness for our sins. None whatsoever. Only Christ's righteousness will do. Only putting our trust in the one who is righteous alone can we be adopted into God's family, right? God only has one eternal son. That is his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we become sons and daughters through Christ. It is a justifying death. Romans 5.9 says that we were declared righteous by His blood. We were blessed by God because of that atoning death. What was the cross? As we think about the baby even this Christmas, what happened on the cross, beloved? It was a symbol of, of gruesome death, of extreme, prolonged, excruciating suffering. It was shameful to die on a cross. It brought ridicule and embarrassment. It was the lowest form of death for the worst of criminals. And Jesus died upon that cross. But many people died on that cross, uh, on crosses during those days. It wasn't even the cross itself. It was the one who died on that cross that brought peace, right? And reconciliation. The God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because He was fully God and He's fully man, He alone qualified to be the peacemaker between God and man. He alone is qualified to die on the cross. I love what John Edie writes. Quote, Thus, the cross is the symbol of peace. He who died on it possessed God's nature, the offended party, and man's nature, the offending party, and thus being qualified to mediate between them, his blood was poured out as a peace offering. The law is satisfied, and guilty sinners are freed from the curse, and amnesty is proclaimed. God reconciles the world unto himself, and justified man has peace with God." One other theologian writes this, God the Father, through the blood of Christ, has purchased back a perfectly ordered and submissive universe. The price has been paid, the transaction complete. Now we await only the final delivery of the guaranteed product. End quote. I love that. It is through the redemptive work of Christ, through the shedding of blood upon the cross, that God is reconciling all things unto Himself. And that's the third question. How extensive is this redemptive work by God? How extensive is it? Well, notice verse 20. It is, it is God, through Him, reconciling all things to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In Romans 8, it's a beautiful passage. Wish we had time to go there. God, in Romans eight nineteen through 23, it says that He subjected creation to futility. But I love, at the end of verse 20, it says that in hope He did it. In hope. In hope. And He goes on to talk about Christ, who is the Redeemer, who, who through Christ, 
He would be the one who would relieve and release the captive to sin and freedom from corruption. Relieve sinners from sin. Even though He cursed creation, beloved, He did it in hope. There are beautiful passages like Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 that talks about what is to come. And and John there in Revelation chapter 21 saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth pass away, and there is no longer any sea. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 3 through 10. There Peter addresses mockers who were denying that Christ was returning, and he gives them a rude awakening and essentially telling believers, Don't be moved by these guys. Okay? God's word came to be when he created the universe. God's word came to be when the, when the universal flood came in the days of Noah. And so it will be that God is going to keep his word concerning the fact that there will be a new world, Peter writes to, the, to those believers. That is where all things are heading, beloved. There will be universal reconciliation. Now some people have used this verse and this passage to, talk, to, to say that, well, does this mean universalism? That everybody will be saved? I don't think that's what it means. Victory and graduation into the new heavens and the new earth, beloved, is only possible through faith in Christ. Amen? That's how you may enter into that new heavens and the new earth, so to speak. To, to rule and reign with Christ is by surrendering your life to Christ as the supreme one over your life. As the Lord and Savior of your life. I want to ask you this morning in closing. Where are you with relation to Christ? Is He the source of your delight? For you have not given your life to Christ. Have you you trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you been reconciled to God? God has extended His love and His mercy toward you in sending His Son Jesus into the world so that you would be reconciled to Him. What is the cost and what is the price that you would surrender all that you are for all that He is? All of your sin, all of your corruption, all of the pursuit of pleasures, laying those down at the foot of the cross and embracing the righteousness of Christ by faith. I pray that if you have not given your life to Christ, even as we celebrate Christmas during this time, you need to realize that Christmas is all about the hope of Christ. That He has ushered in now a new, a new creation through His redeemed people. And one day he's, going, he's coming back to deliver the final death blow. Yes, that baby in the manger was a cute, marvelous, beautiful baby, but He was also a dangerous baby, if you want to put it that way, right? King of the universe. And the most loving and gracious Savior who extended His grace and His mercy toward humanity. And that was shown by putting His life on the cross. Every knee will bow, beloved, someday. Every knee will bow to the Lord and the Savior of the universe. Who do you want to be? You want to be the one who takes his chances, takes her chances, and hopes for the best when you die? Do you want to really be in that position? Wouldn't you rather believe what God says, take him at his word, and bow the knee to Christ, the King of the universe, delighting in him, treasuring him above all things? See, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person will do that. The question is, will that be either by acceptance, willing acceptance, humble acceptance, broken acceptance, or will it be imposed upon you? Which one will it be? I don't know about you, 
But these passages bring great hope to me. Great hope to me. To look upon these verses that speak about the Father's delight in His Son as the one who is fully God, fully share in all of His divine attributes. To look at the fact that, that, that the Father delight in His Son as the, the supreme one and the preeminent one brings great comfort to me. Last night even praying over these things and being reminded that God is the great vindicator of it all. I want to see things through God's eyes. Do you? Even during Christmas time, as we're celebrating the birth of our King, I want, I want my worldview, my perspective to be a, a Christ-exalting perspective. Seeing things through the, through the lenses of the Word of God, the revelation of God. See, every worldview should answer four questions, right? I've been reading a wonderful book by Al Mohler entitled, He is Not Silent, which I would recommend to you. And he talks in there about the fact that every worldview should answer four questions. First of all, what is the origin of all things? Why is there something other than nothing? What does the Bible tell us? That God is the great uncaused cause of all things, right? That He's the supreme one over creation. That's what we've seen in Colossians. So if you want a biblical worldview, you go to the Word of God and you see that it answers the question of origin. God is the creator of it all. Secondly, every worldview must answer what went wrong. What has happened that is broken in the world? And the Bible tells us what is broken, is it not? That the fall of man happened and there was a curse and sin has taken place and every single one of us by nature are children of wrath. And there's brokenness all over the place and chaos. That is what went wrong. Every worldview should answer the question, what is the hope? Is there any solution? Is there any hope? What is the hope, beloved? Christ. Christ is the hope. The preeminent one over creation and over redemption. The one who is the, the, the object of the Father's delight. He is the hope. And every worldview should answer, where is history heading? Where is history heading? Where is, what's going to happen in the future? And does not the Scripture answer that question for us? All things will be reconciled to God someday. A new heavens and the new earth, there will be cosmic renewal, and the only way that you can be there in that blissful, blissful new heavens and the new earth is by repenting of your sins, turning from your sins, and putting your trust in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you can be there. So we need to see things through God's perspective and His Word. He has told us where, where, why everything is wrong, what went wrong, the hope that we have, and where all things are heading. You and I have all of the answers in the Word of God, beloved. He is not silent in a postmodern age, is He? God still speaks as He did two, three, four thousand years ago. He, has, he will forever speak. And the primary way that He has done that is through the supreme Lord of the universe, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, beloved, that He would be the object of our delight. That He would be our greatest treasure. You know, it's great and wonderful to celebrate and to have Christmas trees and lights and gifts and great food. My goodness. Cookies galore these days and desserts galore. But at the end of the day, Jesus truly is the reason for the season, is He not? May He be the source of our delight, beloved. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your wonderful Son, the delight of your heart, that, Lord, from before the foundation of the world, there was a plan set forth to glorify yourself through the sending of your Son 
in the redemption of sinners. Lord, all so that at the end, you may be all in all. We thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, Father, that during this Christmas season, this holiday season, we would be people who would treasure Christ above all things. I pray that, Lord, we would not get uh, stuck in the peripheral matters of life, that Christ would reign supreme in our hearts, that he would be sitting on the throne room of our hearts, Lord, in our affections, in our pursuits, in our, in our decision-making, in the, our outlook on life, Lord, even in the midst of difficult things all over us in our world. What a comfort that we know how all is going to end. May we continue to be devoted to the proclamation of the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.